John 17, join me there in your Bibles, John chapter 17. And we are focusing in on verses six through 19, John 17, verses six through 19, as Jesus continues his high priestly prayer for his people. And in verses six through 19, focusing specifically on his apostles, praying for them, yet as we have seen over these last few weeks, there's application for us as well since Christ's prayers for his apostles are also his prayers for us, his people. Last week, we spent our time answering the question, who is praying this high priestly prayer? Who is praying this prayer? Focusing on Jesus's description of himself that's weaved throughout these 14 verses. Descriptions that highlight the greatness of Jesus. Claims from Christ that showcases seamless unity with his Father. Each description giving a reason why the Father will never deny any request his Son brings to him on our behalf. And as we saw last week, the assurance we find in this prayer is not so much in the individual prayers Jesus offers, The assurance that we find in this prayer is found in the one who is praying those requests. Our assurance is in the prayer, in Christ, the one who represents the Father perfectly, the one who speaks on behalf of the Father flawlessly, one who owns us along with his Father, the one who is glorified through these prayers and then glorifies the Father one who prays for us as the victorious sovereign sitting at the Father's right hand and the one who shares the Father's will. Our assurance is that that Jesus, he continually lives to make intercession for us. The one who is praying for us is the eternal son who the Father will never deny. That's our assurance what we focused on last week. It brings us to the question, second question we must answer this morning. The second question is this, who is Jesus praying for? So we answer the question, who is praying this prayer now? Who is Jesus praying for? And it is a necessary question because of the clear distinction Jesus makes in verse nine, notice it. Verse nine, Jesus says, I ask on their behalf. So there's a transition now. Transition throughout the end of the chapter, the transition is to the requests being offered. But before Jesus gets to those requests, Jesus makes a sharp contrast. I ask On their behalf, here's the contrast, I do not ask on behalf of the world. The assurance of salvation that Jesus prays for in this prayer, the eternal joy he asks his father to give, the protection from the evil one he is requesting, those prayers are not for everyone. 
And the word order shows just how emphatic Jesus is. Literally, Jesus says, not for the world I pray. The emphasis is on the unwillingness to pray for some. The glory of Christ's prayers is confined to a certain group of people. Why? Because Christ has a special interceding, devoted love only for his own. A love he does not have for those who he calls the world. I ask on their behalf, I do not pray for the world. So let's define our terms. The phrase, the world here, we've seen it throughout John's gospel. He uses it often. It's a description of the spiritual realm of unbelievers. Look at verse 14. Verse 14, Jesus says, the world has hated them, Christ's people, because they are not of, they are no longer a part of, they no longer find their identity in the world. The world is the evil world system that has rejected Christ's gospel. The world is the domain of darkness, the words of Colossians 1, ruled by Satan. Look at verse 15. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them, protect them from the evil one. We live on this planet, but we need to be protected from the ruler of the evil world system. Philippians 2, Paul refers to this evil world system as a crooked and perverse generation. It's that spiritual realm of perversion that permeates cultures and societies. It's the realm of dishonesty, the realm of corruption and deceit. We see all around us even today. James 4, the world is the realm of existence that is hostile, at war with God. 1 John 2, the world is the realm that is passing away into final judgment. So Jesus' prayer in verse nine, he is clear. There's only two realms of existence according to Christ. Only two kinds of people. You either belong to Jesus or you belong to Satan. There's no in between. You're either a citizen of Christ's kingdom or you are a citizen of Satan's domain. You're either a child of God or your father is the devil. Let's apply all that to Jesus's prayer. You can either live with the assurance that Christ is right now praying you into glory or you can walk this earth and live your life without the protecting prayers of Jesus. And you will be a part of the world that is passing away into judgment. So the application for us this morning is this. In what realm do you belong? In what realm do you live? On what side of John 17, 9 do you fit? Are you Christ's for whom he is praying? Or are you a citizen of this unbelieving world, those who Christ refuses to bring before his father in prayer, and then he leaves them 
to the wiles and the rule of the devil. On which side of John 79 do you fit? Notice the passage. Notice how Jesus' prayers are confined to this specific group. Look at verse six, the end. Jesus only prays for those who have kept your word. I'm praying for those who have kept your word, Father. Look at verse seven. Jesus only prays for those who have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you and they believed that you sent me. Verse 10, Jesus only prays for those who bring him glory. I have been glorified in them. In the ones I'm praying for, I've been glorified in them. And then verse 14, Jesus only prays for those who are not of the world. Even as I am not of the world, verse 16, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. These are the ones I am praying for, Father, This is a description of them. Again, he does not pray for everyone. And thus, before we can find assurance in this chapter, in Jesus' prayer, we must first ask ourselves, do Jesus' descriptions, do Jesus' descriptions of the people he is praying for describe us? Let's make it personal. Jesus' descriptions of the people he is praying for describe me. Am I someone whom Christ continually lives to make intercession for? Or am I a part of this evil world system? There is no in-between. There is no in-between here. That's how we'll work our way through this passage this morning. I'm gonna note four descriptions of those and only those Jesus brings before his father in prayer. And as you will see, this is a searching text. It is probing. It is one of those texts that call us to examine ourselves, examine ourselves to see if we are actually in the faith. Let's begin with description number one. Description number one, Christ only prays for those who live a life of obedience to his word. Christ only prays for those who live a life of obedience to his word. Start in verse six. I have manifested your name. I've revealed you, Father. I've showcased your character. I've revealed your nature. I've claimed your name for myself. I've performed your miracles. I've spoken your words. So much so that for Jesus to say, you've seen me, can say, you've seen the Father. It's how united the Son and the Father are. I have manifested your name. But as is clear throughout Jesus's ministry, only some believed. Only some saw the true glory of Christ. Here's here's God in human flesh walking this world, tens of thousands saw the nature of God in Christ and yet turned away from him. Tens of thousands heard the word of God when Christ spoke and rejected those words. 
And so what separates the true believers for whom Jesus prays in this passage from the evil world system who rejects Jesus, who Jesus refuses to pray for? Well, continue. Jesus tells us, first of all, what separates those two groups, first of all, is the Father's election. The Father's election. Next phrase in verse six. I have manifested your name, showcased it to the men you gave me out of the world. The reason some saw the glory of God in the face of Christ is because of the electing work of the Father. You gave them to me. Continue the verse. They were yours. They belong to you. You chose them. And you gave them in love to me. They're a love gift from you to me. So Christ is only praying for those whom the Father chooses unto salvation. But now notice the next phrase. What visible evidence, that's the key here for this morning, what visible evidence shows that you have been elected by the Father? What confirmation can you point to that Jesus is praying for you? Continue verse six, and they, the Father's chosen ones, the ones for whom Christ is praying, they have kept your word. This now speaks of the Spirit's regenerating work in the lives of those Christ brings to his Father's throne. The Father chooses, the Spirit regenerates, the Spirit gives that changed heart filled with faith and repentance. He gives a new heart, a new heart that longs to, again, verse six, keep, observe, obey God's word. This is the first fruit of saving faith. This is the first evidence you belong to Christ. You obey the word of God. You don't dismiss it. You don't explain it away. You don't ignore it. You love it. You delight in it. You cling to it and you obey it. And understand, this is Jesus' consistent message throughout his ministry. Jesus knew nothing of the easy believism, the repentant-less gospel that is so prevalent today. And quite frankly, it is that repentant-less gospel that has deceived many, deceived many into thinking they are truly saved when they are not. gospel call that presents obedience to Christ is optional, that gospel call that has never been Jesus's message, ever. Listen to John 8, 31. John 8, 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, they claimed saving faith. They claimed it. But notice what Jesus says, if you continue in my word. There's an if clause. If you continue in my word, there's the evidence. Then and only then are you truly disciples of mine. That's the test if your faith is real. Do you continue 
Do you remain in, obey as a pattern of life Christ's words? Are Christ's words your delight? Do you love them? Are they your authority? Later in John 8, Jesus will say this. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is a solemn warning now, if, another if clause, if anyone keeps, same word used in John 17, they have kept your word. That's what I'm praying for. Same word here. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death, the second death, eternal death. So those who have never been changed from the disobedient to the obedient, they will never be welcomed into heaven. They will see the second death. They will experience the lake of fire. But the one who keeps Christ's words, they experience what Jesus prays in verse 24 of John 17. They will see his glory. They'll be satisfied, welcomed into heaven. Think of John 14. If, if anyone loves me, he will keep, same word, he will keep my word. So if the spirit has truly changed you, you will truly love Christ. Obedience to Christ's words will characterize your life. But the flip side is also true if you finish that verse. He who does not love me does not keep my words. If you do not live a life of obedience, you cannot claim to love Jesus. Where there's no love for Christ, there's no obedience to Christ. Where there's no obedience to Christ, there's no true faith. And where there is no true faith, there is no high priestly prayer of Jesus for you. This has been Jesus' message throughout his ministry. It's what we read in Psalm 103 to start our service. Psalm 103, verse 17. The loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. That's the message. This is not new. Now back to the verse here, that word kept, verse six. That word kept is in the perfect tense. It indicates an enduring and continual character of this obedience. This is not referring to perfection of life. So don't hear me saying that. This is not perfection of life. This is a pattern of life. I think the apostles show us just that. The apostles were far from perfect. At times their faith was weak. Often they could not grasp all that Jesus told them. They were fearful in just an hour or so. They will flee for their life. Far from perfect. But one thing we can say about the apostles, they loved Jesus to the point of obedience. They loved his word. They followed Jesus as a way of life. They repented when they sinned. They confessed when they failed. 
Yes, they were far from perfect. But notice verse six again, Jesus could still say, they have kept your word. That's the pattern of their life. And thus, as they overhear Jesus's prayer, they are assured that Christ was bringing their names, though imperfect, he was bringing their names before his father's throne. Let's bring this principle to us. If we are going to rest on Christ's intercession, if we are going to find hope in this prayer, then we must examine our faith. We must ask ourselves, do I keep Christ's words as a way of life? Ask yourself that. Let that question probe your heart. Do I love Jesus to the point of obedience? Let's step on some toes. When was the last time you chose obedience when tempted to sin? When was the last time you chose obedience when tempted to sin? When was the last time you confessed your sin in prayer? Or do you come to the end of the day and you're like, well, it's pretty good. No sins today. When was the last time you were truly broken over sin? When was the last time you specifically applied God's word to your own life and then actually made changes because of that? Is that your pattern? Or are those things scanty at best? Jesus begins his prayer with this description. He makes it clear he is only praying for those who live a life of obedience to his word. They have kept your word. Second description. Description number two. Christ only prays for those who believe in the true Jesus. Christ only prays for those who believe in the true Jesus, from the life of saving faith to now the necessary doctrine of saving faith. Doctrine matters. Theology matters. What you believe matters. And I'll never forget what one lady told me. I was in Massachusetts. It wasn't here. Um, Massachusetts, after I preached a sermon in the gospel of Mark, just preaching on Christ, hopefully exalting him. You know how I preach. It's verse by verse. I don't really meander off too much. I'm preaching on Christ, exalting him, and she comes up after the service, and she is angry, and she's angry at me, and she said, that is not the Jesus I know. That's a frightening comment, a frightening comment. Why? Because of verse seven. Now they, the ones for whom I pray, now they have come to know something. They have come to know, they have come to believe that everything you have given me is from you. They've believed my claims. They don't fight back against them. They've believed our unity. They've believed my testimony. That's your testimony of me. Doctrine matters. And yes, there are still aspects of Jesus' saving work that could not be understood by the apostles. The spirit had to come, Christ had to die. But as you work your way through this gospel, you see what these apostles came to believe about Jesus. Here's the summary. 
Here's what you must believe. They believe Jesus was the Passover lamb of God. John 1, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They believe Jesus was the Messiah King. We have found the Messiah. They believe Jesus was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. We have found him whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. We found him. They believe Jesus was the eternal son who would rule from a glorious throne. Rabbi, they say, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. They believed that Jesus was the exclusive savior, that eternal life was found only in him, only in his gospel. It's John 6, Lord, they say, Lord, to whom shall we go? We will not leave you. Why? You, you alone have the words of eternal life. Where are we going to go? They believe that Jesus shared the same holiness as the Father. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Back in chapter 16, verse 30, they believe Jesus possessed the mind of God. You know all things. They believe that Jesus came from God. We believe that you came from God. It's all working up to this passage here, but look at verse eight, John 17, eight. They also believe that Jesus's words were God's words. For the words which you gave me, Jesus says, I have given to them and they received them. They believed my words were your words, Father. They believed that Christ's gospel was God's gospel. They did not say, I'm angry at this Jesus. It's not the Jesus I know or want to know. Continue verse eight, and they truly understood with certainty that I came forth from you. They believed that I was born. When, before I was born, I enjoyed that face-to-face relationships, Jesus is saying. They believed that you sent me. They believed Christ's divine mission. They believed he was sent to save sinners. This is what they believe. And soon, in just three days, they would believe in Jesus's victorious resurrection as well. This is the content of saving faith. If you don't believe this, you'll never be prayed for by Christ. So this is what you must believe if Christ is going to pray for you. You must have a right view of your own fallenness. You must have a right view of your own fallenness that you cannot save yourself. Despite all the effort that you might exert, you need a payment for your sin and you cannot provide that payment. It's impossible. You need the sinless lamb of God to pay the sin debt you owe the Holy One. And thus, you must have a right view of Christ, the only acceptable sacrifice for your sin. 
must have a right view of Christ. You must believe that he is the one to whom all the Old Testament points. That he is the one who has been given all authority to judge mankind. That he is eternal God, that he is co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. He existed in God's presence before the foundation of the world, uncreated. You must believe that he conquered sin when he died on the cross. You must believe that he conquered death and Satan when he rose again from the dead. You must believe that he is the final king who will one day assume his glorious throne forever. And that he alone possesses the words, the gospel of eternal life. That is what you must believe if Jesus is going to bring your name before his father in prayer. In fact, we see this in verse 20. That's his point. Verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone. I'm not only praying for the apostles, and watch now, but for those also who what? Who believe. I'm praying for the ones who believe through their word, their testimony, their gospel. Jesus is no universalist. He's no inclusivist. Praise only for those who confess him as exclusive savior, eternal God, and sovereign Lord. Who confess that, let's combine the two points here, who confess that to the point of obedience. Continue into verse nine. I ask on their behalf, exclusive prayer by an exclusive savior. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the unbelieving world. Is this the Jesus you believe? If you do not believe this Jesus, then you are of this world. Your name never reaches the ear of God. But if you do believe this Jesus to the point of obedience, I'm gonna put it in the words of J.C. Ryle. Here's what he says. If you truly believe this Jesus, you are daily watched and thought for and provided for with unfailing care by one whose eye never slumbers and never sleeps and he never stops praying for you. That's the promise, that's the assurance. Your, never, your name never leaves the Father's throne of grace. Leads into a third description. Third description of those who, for whom Christ prays. Description number three, Christ only prays for those who bring him glory. Christ only prays for those who bring him Glory. Again, notice the contrast in verse nine. I ask on their behalf. It's very specific. Drop down to the end of verse 10. Who are these for whom he's praying for? I have been glorified in them. I've been glorified in them. 
Here's the very heart of saving faith. There is a desire, there is a purpose and a goal to no longer exalt yourself. That's the old man. That's who we were. But now our desire is to bring praise and honor and esteem and regard to our Savior. It's the heart change the Spirit brings. This is the attitude of John the Baptist. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is the call of 1 Corinthians 10 for every believer, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to what? We know it, do all to the glory of God. That's our calling. So again, here's the questions that we must ask. Is the glory of God our driving purpose? Could Jesus say that about us in verse 10? I have been glorified in them. Do you sing with the psalmist? Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Do you echo Romans 11? To him be the glory forever, amen. Do you agree with Peter? To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity, amen. And we could add numerous other verses all with that phrase, to him be the glory forever. Is that you? Is that your desire? Do you care more about the glory of God than you do about your own worth? Again, this is not new in Jesus's ministry. Back in John 5, Jesus says this, how can you believe? It's a rhetorical question. It's impossible for you to have saving faith. It is impossible for you to have saving faith when you receive glory from one another, when that's your driving purpose. When you're more concerned with personal praise and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. Jonathan Edwards has put it this way. It's a long quote, stick with me, it's worth it. If you talk about the glory of God, you have to quote Edwards. I learned that in seminary, that's what I'm doing here. So here's what Jonathan Edwards writes. He, the true believer, loves to attribute to God the glory of what he is, what he has, and what he does. The believer delights in giving the praise of all that he has, all that he is, and all that he enjoys to God and acknowledging that it comes from him and that it is all the fruit of his kindness and is not owing to himself, that it is not owing to his own strength to get it or to his own merit to deserve it, but alone to the power of God and mercy of God in being willing to bestow it he loves to give God the glory of all his temporal things. Does that describe you? Do you love to give God the praise for everything you have? He loves to give him the whole praise of his redemption and salvation. He admires God's goodness in electing him from all eternity. He admires that he should be of this distinguishing goodness chosen out from amongst so many to be made the subject vessel of honor and subject of glory. 
He wonders at God's goodness in sending his son to redeem him. He likewise admires at his grace and calling of him to Christ by his Holy Spirit. He delights to acknowledge that his conversion is not at all owing in any respect to himself, but to the grace of God alone. So he loves to give God the glory of all his works, whereby glory redounds to God. He is not for attributing anything to his own power or goodness. Again, is that your desire? When he overcomes temptation, he exalts God that his grace was sufficient for him. When he does a good work, he takes none of the glory of it to himself as if he had done some great thing that made him worthy of God's love. And therefore, he will do it as secretly as possibly he can. He will not sound a trumpet before him to give notice of it as if he gloried in it, but will do as secretly as possibly he can. For he knows that he does only his duty. He desires not that any should know of it but God. And to him, he will say, not unto me, O Lord, not unto me, but unto thy name be the glory. And if that is your desire, if that is your desire, then you can rest assured that your all-glorious Savior is praying for you. Fourth and final description Jesus gives here. Those for whom Christ prays. Description number four. Christ only prays for those who have been severed from this world. Christ only prays for those who have been severed spiritually from this world. Drop down to verse 14. I have given them, once I'm praying for, I have given them your word, your gospel, and the evil world system has hated them. Why? Because they are not of the world. This is what the gospel does. They are not of the world. The gospel severs us from everything this world holds dear. It breaks the chains of sin that once held us captive so much so that we no longer belong to the God of this world. We no longer share the same loves of this world. We no longer have the same Christless goals and fruitless hopes. As the world, the world is passing away. Why? Because in the gospel, through the gospel, we have been rescued. We're just saved. We've been rescued from the domain, the authority, the power of darkness. Satan is no, no longer our master. And we have been transferred, transferred in the kingdom of God's beloved son. This is why Christians are called aliens and strangers of this world. We're in it. We're not of it. That's why we're called strangers and exiles on this earth. Do you feel like an exile? That phrase here, they are not of the world. It's a reference to our new nature. 
New nature we are given when Christ saves us. And it is such a radical change, such a radical change of nature that the only thing Jesus can compare our new relationship to the world to, the only thing he can compare it to is his relationship with this evil world system. That's amazing. It's how radical this change is. It's how powerful the gospel is. Continue verse 14. They, the ones I'm praying for, they are not of the world. Watch now. Even as I am not of the world. That's quite a change. It's repeated in verse 16 for emphasis. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. That's a severing. This fallen world is no longer our home. Our home is the Father's house. Jesus promises back in John 14. This world's evil master is no longer our master. We belong to Christ. Its goals are no longer our goals. Its ambitions are no longer our ambitions. Its values are no longer our values. This is the severing power of Christ's gospel. And these are the ones for whom Christ prays. So again, a probing question. Have you been severed from this evil world system? Have you been severed from this evil world system or have you adopted the world's goals? Have you been conformed to the world's pattern? Do you pursue the world's priorities? Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Friendship with the world is still hostility towards God. It's still true. The warning in 1 John is still true. And no doubt John is referring to this very passage when he writes this, do not love the world nor the things of the world. What do you love? What do you delight in? Do not love the world nor the things of the world. Why? Because if, it's a contrast, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That is clear. If you love the world, if you are bound to this world, if your loves and desires and ambitions have not been severed from this evil world system, then it is evidence that the spirit has not actually changed your heart. That the love of the father is not in you. Which is then followed up with this warning. The world is passing away, be warned. The world is passing away and also its lusts, judgment is coming. But the one who does the will of God, the one who lives in obedience, keeps his word, the one who does the will of God, he is the one who will live forever. And we can relate this back to John 17. Why is that the one who will live forever? Is because that is the one Christ is praying into heaven. Next week, we will begin to unpack each of Jesus's prayers that he offers on our behalf. But before we get to those, we must start here and we must ask this necessary question. 
Is Jesus praying for you? Is Jesus praying for you? Are you truly Christ's? Are you truly saved? Do you live a life of obedience to God's word? Do you believe the eternal nature of Jesus? Do you desire to bring glory to your savior? Have you been severed from this evil world system? Those are the questions. And we must ask them why. Back to verse nine, because Jesus makes the contrast clear. I ask, I pray, and it is a glorious prayer. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask, I do not pray on behalf of the world. Father, we are thankful that you have given us a savior who prays. And we are thankful that you have given us your spirit to bring conviction to our hearts. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would do a convicting work in us. We would not take your grace and your gospel for granted. But through your spirit, we would examine ourselves. We would ask these probing questions. And Lord, I pray if there are some here now who have thought that they are true believers, but then they see this and see they're not, I pray that your spirit would change their heart. Grant them eyes to see the true glory of Christ and a heart that it longs to obey him. Pray this in Christ's name, amen.